Welcome back to the Winter War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 12. It's the third week of February 1940, and the Russians have eventually succeeded in punching a hole through the Mannerheim line. As you heard last episode, the second major offensive began on the 11th of February, when Russian commander Timoshenko ordered a massive bombardment, followed by focused thrusts at Popius and million-dollar bunkers. That section of the line was pierced, but only after a few more thousand Russians had been listed as casualties. The Russians had also attacked in force near Taipali, charging across open ice in suicidal rushes, marching across Lake Ladoga like it was a parade ground exercise. The fighting here was intense, and on the 14th of February, 2,500 Red Army troops died in the space of a few hours trying to overcome the Finnish position. Soviet aircraft were bombing the sector daily. At least 100 planes flew over here every day, bombing and strafing the Finns. In the sector further west, near the Muolai church, it was carnage. The most exposed Finnish position was alongside the church and along the banks of Lake Kirkajavi. There was a large Finnish bunker here, but troops had to crawl out across a wasteland and across at least one coffin that had been unearthed during the bombardment. The devil's in the details in a war. At 6am on February 14th, the Russians bombarded this position with everything they had, including the 76.2mm field guns that pulled and placed inside the churchyard itself, only a few metres away from the Finns. 25 Russian tanks then advanced after the bombardment, along with four flame-throwing tanks that shot a stream of fire 30 metres from the turrets. It was a curious device, because the Finns discovered they could actually run through the stream of fire as long as their skin was covered. It would only scorch their snowsuits. Some of the more courageous Finns ran straight towards these fire-breathing dragons and got so close the tank machine guns could not depress low enough to hit them. Then they lobbed grenades or mines under the tank, blowing the tracks off. While the Russians continued advancing, unlike earlier attempts, they appeared to operate in a more cohesive pattern with infantry actually supporting tanks. However, the infantry still hung back a few final yards, many pushing their armoured shields mounted on skis ahead of them as they crawled along. Finnish snipers shot these Russians behind their shields in the legs and the buttocks. One platoon commander called Kusala hit at least 15 Russians, incapacitating them, but he was then caught in the open by a tank section. Kusala dived into a shell crater as a tank rolled back and forth over him. By some miracle, he survived, albeit with giant welts on his back. The Russians withdrew, licking their wounds. Kusala led his men into no man's land, dragging back 30 shields dropped by the Russians, which they then used to shore up their trenches. On the 16th of February, the Russians moved against Kusala's position once more. His company was now whittled down to half-strength. Troops were lying alongside the Moorlai church ground. They were shaken by what they saw that morning. Fifty tanks advanced after a bone-crunching bombardment. By eleven in the morning, the entire area was a smoking ruin, and Kusala could not see any movement from his men. Perhaps the bludgeoning had finally wiped them out. But as the next infantry assault began with the Russians behind their metal shields, some of his men appeared to have survived and began to fire back as they lay in their trenches, while two KV tanks hit mines laid the previous night and blew up. Drivers of two other KV, which are the largest the Russians had, turned around in panic, and in doing so they exposed the infantry passengers to the Finnish small arms and machine gun fire. These were raked off the back of the KVs. Later that afternoon, 
Finnish resolve was tested again as Russian tanks drove back and forth along the sides of their trenches, collapsing the walls on the Finnish defenders. Only a handful survived this tactic, but once again, as the Russians attacked this tiny group, they were repulsed by heavy and accurate fire. But this was the end of the road for the defenders. They were down to a ragtag group of exhausted men. So that night, Kusala withdrew from Mulai Church. Of his entire company, less than a platoon walked out. They, however, left more than a thousand dead Russians in the snow, along with blackened hulks of 16 tanks. In the Lady Bulls further west along the Mannerheim line, the Russians threw everything they had at the Finns. They had managed to break this part of the line, but the Finns were fighting tooth and nail to keep the Red Army from swinging west behind the crucial defensive position. I explained last episode how a large section of tanks, more than 50, had managed to crash through the line and did turn towards Vipuri, but then inexplicably the commander ordered a halt, just as certain victory was in sight. On the evening of the 14th, the Finnish High Command had met with the overall commander of the Isthmus Army, General Osterman, favouring a pullback to the third line of defence, the rear line. This was anchored at Vipuri, the large town on the western side of the Isthmus, that the Russians had noted as one of their main targets. Army Commander General Oquist agreed with some prompting from Marshal Mannerheim. He wanted to stand and fight at the intermediate line, and Mannerheim really proceeded to talk over Osterman, who was technically speaking Oquist's senior. Eventually, Mannerheim left the meeting, returning to his base at Ottawa without issuing clear instructions. What had complicated his position was the fact that negotiations were underway with the Russians. This was the reason for Mannerheim trying to hold on to every inch of Finnish territory for as long as possible, so that if a peace deal was signed, the Finns wouldn't lose too much ground. Still, there was a limit for the defenders, and many had reached this limit. While the Russians attacked the line repeatedly on the 14th, they failed to overcome the Finns except in the Lardy Bulge, which the Red Army enlarged over the next 48 hours. The Finns, based at the Sumo sector, were in some danger of being outflanked, so they withdrew. It was a bitter moment. They had spent 70 days fending off Russian attacks. Now they retreated. At first, the Russians didn't realize they'd gone, and when they renewed their assaults on the morning of the 15th with two entire divisions backed up by more than 100 tanks, they walked into the Finnish trenches, scratching their heads. The enemy was gone. Back in Moscow, Joseph Stalin received the news that Summer had fallen. He had been misinformed before and he didn't believe the report, demanding that eyewitnesses contact him to confirm the sight of the USSR flag flying over the Summer pillboxes. They phoned him. He accepted their word. Things were growing more and more grim for the Finns. They had no more reserves of men and by now, into the third week of February, 16-year-old boys were being armed along with geriatrics and even convicts being issued uniforms. Only the less serious criminals, but still you get the idea. It fell upon these last gasp units to try and stop the Soviets from advancing west from the Lardy Bulge towards the strategic town of Vipuri. Teenagers from the Civic Guard at Vipuri, as well as shattered groups from the JR-14 Battalion, were rushed to a thinly defended line in the open and barren terrain around Kamara Ridge. They didn't even have time to dig holes. They just burrowed into the snow and turned their guns east. As quoted in the book, A Frozen Hell, written by William Trotter, Finnish historian Wolf Hasty watched these boys arrive at the ridge. 15 February, 1940. In the early afternoon there appeared in front of our tent a reserve ensign, really nothing more than a child, asking if we could spare some food for him and his men. 
The men he led were barely old enough to shave and had just come straight from anti-tank training school to the front line. They joined the Finnish roadblock in the front of the Lidy bulge, shivering and terrified. Husty updated his diary the next day. 16 February 1940. Same reserve ensign back again, blood on his clothes, asking for more food. He lost both guns and half his men when the Russians broke through. His men were scattered. The tanks drove over his guns and crushed them. Why had they not fired the guns? asked Husty. It appeared that the youngsters had arrived at night. The guns were under canvas. They hadn't opened them until the morning of the Russian assault. It was only then they realized that these weren't the same anti-tank guns they'd used in training. The teenagers couldn't figure out how to use them before the Russians attacked. What a cruel twist of fate. At four o'clock on the afternoon of the 16th of February, Mannerheim ordered a general retreat of the 2nd Corps to the intermediate line. Meanwhile, back in Russia, subterfuge and intelligence had confounded Stalin, which is always the best technique to deal with a maniacal despot. Always paranoid, Stalin had been kept aware of Allied initial plans to seize the Finnish nickel mines at Petsamo in the north, then invade Mamansk, or even more outrageous, the plan to invade Archangel. The British had managed to get their hands on a bullet-riddled Finnish codebook and had heard that Mannerheim believed his men could hold out until at least May. That piece of unfiltered information was a fill-up for the British. With their own interests in mind, London planned a limited action in the north of Finland. They were not going to try and take Mamansk, but perhaps Petsamo was a possibility. The French, meanwhile, had more grandiose plans, announcing they'd send tens of thousands of soldiers to help the Finns. This was always lunacy, because the French had a much bigger fish to fry. The German Blitzkrieg was underway, and they were the target. Intelligence channels kept Stalin aware of the Allied plans, but these channels were based mostly in Paris, not in London. Stalin, being Stalin, was about to make things far worse for himself through his fear and loathing of the British, goaded into action by the head of Russia's feared NKVD, Lavrenti Beria. It all boiled down to information Beria had received from his spooks in London, who reported that the British planned a limited intervention, mainly through dispatching about a dozen Blenheim bombers to help the Finns target St. Petersburg. However, Beria was suspicious. Being a war situation, he preferred the information coming from Paris, which seemed to contradict the London information. As Klaus has pointed out, in war, soldiers tend to believe the worst-case scenario when there is a contradiction in information. In February, Beria had shut down the entire British NKVD operation, the Resentura, as it was known. Its head, Mr. Gorsky, was recalled but not killed, despite Moscow now believing their sources in Britain were indulging in disinformation. Even though the sources were the infamous Cambridge Five, Ironically, one of the five was the avowed Marxist Guy Burgess, who was thought of in Moscow as a double agent, who they believed was actually being paid by the British Secret Service to spread lies back to Moscow. He wasn't, but it goes to show how fundamentalist politicians go blind when it comes to information. You can excuse Stalin to some extent. The London-based NKVD had fed him stories the previous autumn that the British were adopting a defeatist attitude about the chances of a Finnish victory. But now, the British were talking of sending equipment and possibly men to Finland, while the French were positively crowing about the Finns. 
The original intelligence reports were out of step with reality. Stalin was terrified of a repeat of the thrashing the Finns had handed his much-vaunted Red Army. By mid-January, his intelligence sources in Paris announced that French ammunition, gun supplies and even engineers were going to be sent to Finland. That worried the Stavka no end. Perhaps the most mentally fixating moment for the Soviet dictator was when Stalin heard that French military commander General Maxime Weygandt was flying to Syria and in his briefcase were plans to attack Baku, Batumi and Tuapsi by air. These were centers of Russia's oil production. More worryingly, he was told that Turkey was going to join the attack and suddenly a risk had become a serious threat. Both air and ground attacks were apparently imminent. The Soviets were deterred. It was obvious that any attempt by the West to help Finland was limited by the German attacks in Europe, but this possible assault on the Caucasus was a different kettle of fish in Stalin and the Stavka's mind. The Caucasus produced over 90% of Soviet oil and petrol. If Baku was put out of action, it would be fatal for the Soviet war effort. The Germans, meanwhile, were listening in to Russia's reports and thought this an ideal moment to prod the Soviets. Remember, at this stage, Berlin and Moscow were still all lovey-dovey. They'd signed non-aggression pacts and economic deals. But as we all know, there is no honor amongst thieves. The Germans wanted the chasm between the Russians and the West to deepen. So Berlin fed Stalin their own bits of false information, warning Moscow of French plans to attack Baku from Syria. This sounds almost modern, and I say that because the crucial key in this deal was Turkey. Russia's Foreign Minister Molotov began making sweet diplomatic noises in Ankara's general direction. The false flag intelligence operation gathered pace. The British whispering campaign grew into a virtual shout. Canadian newspaper magnate and 1940s British director of propaganda in enemy countries, Campbell Stewart, as well as Foreign Office head of political intelligence Rex Leeper, contacted the Turks and bluntly advised that Ankara should Prepare ground for action at a later date. The Turkish government agreed that they were readying matters for any eventuality. Just to add a bit of pepper into this diplomatic stew, the Afghani government then said it was also ready for action. The Turks then showed the British a special map which demarcated areas of Soviet territory that Ankara claimed as theirs, inhabited by people of the Turkish race. Russian intelligence heard about that too, further increasing Stalin's paranoia. By mid-February, all these whispers and prods, these false flags, these red herrings, not to mention real plans, had left a marked impression on Stalin's mind. He knew that on the 5th of February, the Allied War Council had actually decided to send troops to Scandinavia, with 15,000 of those earmarked for a march into northern Finland. The British also had finalized plans to send thousands of men to the Crimea, and these would be focused on heading towards the Caucasus. For Stalin, that was enough. Time to negotiate peace with the Finns just to protect his all-important oil. Molotov had already rejected as ridiculous the idea that the Soviets could ally with Germany against the West, and he sought British mediation to end the Winter War in February 1940. His main message to the British, explaining their position, was that Moscow was worried about the fate of Leningrad should Germany invade, and of course, as we know from history, he was right to worry. Molotov said that the Russians wanted the Finnish border to be drawn where Peter the Great drew his border in 1721. 
That was much more than they demanded before the war, but as I said last episode, still a better option than Finland being governed by a puppet Soviet leader. In a kind of fop to the British, Molotov said they'd hand Petsamo and its important nickel mines back to the Finns as a sweetener. The Russians knew that the British were concerned about the nickel mines, so London would possibly be a little more open to the idea of trying to get the Finns to agree to handing over a large chunk of their territory to Moscow in an exchange for peace. All of this diplomatic hoo-ha was directly linked to Russia's surge along the Isthmus and Timoshenko's bloody actions. This was a kind of fait accompli act, showing the Finns what lay in store for them if they continued fighting. The military assault was partly a political tactic to get Helsinki back to the negotiating table. Subsequent research has revealed that this massive attack was by 40% of Soviet military personnel in the second week of February, and it succeeded in Moscow's plan and pushed the Finns to the point of collapse. By the 18th of February, Soviet commander Grendal ordered another assault on the Finns in the Taipali sector around Kiprismaki by the 150th Rifle Division. Pouring into the Kokkiniemi bridgehead at the southern eastern corner of the 3rd Army Corps area of responsibility, they routed the Finnish 1st Battalion. The 150th was now in control of the strongholds around Kiprismaki and Terentia, but once again the Red Army failed to press home their advantage and stopped. That gave the Finns time to shore up their defences at the interim line at Kirvismaki. By the 20th, the Finns stopped the advance along the rim of a gravel pit. Then they counterattacked, pushing the Russians back. It was at this point that Mannerheim sent his famous message to the soldiers at Taipali. I have witnessed with admiration the tenacity, the willingness for self-sacrifice and the courage that especially the men of the 7th Division in the Taipali sector have shown in repelling the enemy assaults. I expect that going forward, the 7th Division will continue to heroically hold its positions, and even if the enemy somewhere temporarily breaks through, will throw it back with a counterattack. The Soviets continued their attack on the 22nd of February. They broke through Tarantia, but were repulsed at Kovashmaki once more. The Finnish 3rd Army Corps counterattacked as Mannerheim had requested, and pushed the Red Army out of Tarantia as well. Then the Soviets bombarded the Finns around Taipali, switching the ground attacks almost exclusively to the Lahe Road bridgehead in the west of the Isthmus. Mannerheim realized his men were fighting for time, which was rapidly running out. His intermediate line around Lahe was reinforced by anti-tank guns, and the Russians had become reckless. On the 19th and then again on the 22nd of February, the Finn anti-tank batteries clobbered Russian tanks between Lake Mulanjavi and the Vuoksi waterway wiping out more than 50 armoured vehicles. On the Finnish left, where the 3rd Corps had spread their strong points, the original Mannerheim line position still held. On February 18th, the Russians spotted a Finnish salient developing there. Their right flank was now threatened by Taipali. The Russians launched a massive assault on the 18th. The Finnish survivors called this day the Black Day at Taipali. The aerial and artillery bombardments were so stupendous. The Russians dented the front, but could not break through the intermediate line. Mannerheim was now deeply worried, and decided to shake up Finnish command. General Ostermann had fallen from favour, worsened by the fact that the general's wife had been seriously wounded in a Russian air attack, causing him further angst. So on the 19th, Ostermann resigned his command, citing ill health. Mannerheim accepted, then immediately caused tension by ignoring the next man in line for the job, General Ochwist and installing General Heinrichs 
of the Third Corps instead. It was also time to reorganise the Finnish 1st and 2nd Divisions and time for new orders. What happened next is for next episode. Please head off to the website desmondlatham.blog for more details about this and my other shows. Until next, goodbye.